th this project is about uh, nuclear energy and the engagement with society. So we've had this technological development, we have this history of technology, but what was going on around that development in terms of society? And we have different actors. We have industry, we have public, we have communities, we have governments, we have systems of governance and regulation. And what we're trying to find out by these methods is really kind of what explains why certain messages made more sense to the contemporaries and why certain messages uh, and political constellations led political actors to decide the way they did. And you need to think conceptual ways. And that's very difficult. And that's why you need to sit around a table. You need to collaborate with other scientists. You need to read what the others have written and this kind of constant dialogue. I think one of the advantages of a lot of like participatory research methods is they give you the opportunity to create little experiments in public dialogue. We're trying to get hold of as many people as we possibly can. And the reason for that is that these people won't be around in two, three years time. So if we want to do this, uh, for the sake of understanding the history of this with the people that actually were there, we have to do it now. Welcome to the Honest Podcast, the history of nuclear energy and society, episode two. I'm your host, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, playing the role of observer and student during this multi-year, multidisciplinary research project on how society looks at and has looked at nuclear energy since it appeared in different countries and across borders, and how this relationship has changed or remained over time, with help from 23 research institutions and the long list of researchers, some of which you will hear from during this program. Now, this is episode two, covering the question of how to conduct such a large body of research, or how to achieve the goal of better understanding society and nuclear energy. In the academic world, we would call this the methodology episode. In episode one, late last year, that's 2015, we looked at the big picture and introduced the project. Why do it? And who was involved? Today, we turn to the all-important how question. This spring, members of Honest gathered in beautiful Valencia, Spain, at the European Social Science History Conference to both present the project and to discuss its progress and next steps. I tagged along to listen and ask questions, specifically for today's theme. We begin first with John Witten of the University of Central Lancashire, to whom I posed the essential question how to get to the answers to these big questions, how to do this project, and why to use such a strategy. We'll use different methodologies. And, and when I say methodologies, I mean just that. What, uh, what path are we going to follow to get the answers that we're looking for? And, and it's, under, it's really important to have a clear methodology so that when people look at this information, look at these findings in years to come, and they want to understand how we've got to that point, 
they can understand, they can see how we've done it, what we've done. Now there are different types of methodology. There are well-established methodologies, so there are ways of looking at numerical data, there's ways of looking at recorded interviews and, and textual data. They're all well established and they're in the literature. And it may be we have to use a combination of those two things, that's called mixed methods. But as long as you clearly state your methodology and how you've gone towards those answers, then as academics we need to have that validity, it's very important. When your articles, for example, are peer-reviewed within a journal, your peer reviewer will need to understand exactly what method you've used. And if it's a well-known method, he or she will say, all oh, right, okay, I understand what you've done now. But if it's something that you've actually adapted or changed to suit your situation, you have to very clearly explain that. Now, we've got a group of historians and social scientists, and one of the big challenges we've had in the project is to actually understand methods from a historical perspective and for historians to understand social science methods. And we often talk about the same things, but we call them different things. We'll talk about familiar methods, so we'll talk about discourse analysis, where we assess texts. Historians obviously do a lot of that. They understand discourse analysis. But actually, do we as social scientists use discourse analysis in a slightly different way? And if we do, we need to explain how and why. So methods really is, is just an explanation of how we've reached our conclusions. How we've got there, what's the journey been that we've got there. You explain who you've interviewed, when you've interviewed them, what you've talked about, what the questions are. You explain that. But you also try and help anybody else reading that and your, and your fellow colleagues, your researchers, what exactly the process is that you've gone through to, to reach and interpret that data and to reach those answers. So that's what methods are and that's what they're for. And, and, and as social scientists, we philosophically we would call ourselves constructivists so we believe that actually people generate their own view of reality we will say to one person answer this question we'll say to somebody else answer the same question and we will get slightly different answers and that's because a lot of us view things sometimes completely differently but very often just slightly differently mm -hmm. but again if you have a method that allows you to be consistent and that's the key here, to be repeatedly consistent in your approach when you're dealing with people. Then by using this understanding of people generating their own and slightly different views, you can understand the complexity. Mm -hmm. Now, you have that, but then you take a step up and take the wider view and say, well, okay, but what are the patterns within that complexity? And again, you have the data to understand that you do have broad patterns, but these are the caveats, these are the exceptions, these are very common. It's all about explaining that and explaining the pattern. A pattern's great if you understand the context. Very important and that's why yesterday at the meeting I was talking a lot about context and understand it and I think historians can help us do that. They give us that picture. What, what was happening at the time? You know, decisions were made, okay decisions were made, but, but why? What was going on politically? within that uh, within that country you know who was in government how were they in government was it democratic was it not democratic so all this this context is is incredibly important for social scientists with 23 countries included in the study many having their own unique story when it comes to nuclear energy 
One key tool the team will make use of is a database, one that will contain and help organize the many country reports that the team will generate. That, that is a, the challenge of a big project like this. It, we have, is it 23 countries all producing country reports? And how do you understand as a single person what's going on in each country? I think the answer is you can't. So when we have something like the database that Kala has worked with engineers to produce and has led on, when you have something like that that can hold information, where it can hold 23 country reports, and you say to the database, uh, can you search for perception? Can you search for actor? And it will tell you in each report where that appears. And you can build up that picture across 23 country reports. Now, to try and read 23 country reports and hold it within your head, you, you can, but it's very difficult. If you have a tool like a database that you can uh, investi in, investigate and you can really prod the database and say, you know, tell me, th this is what I want you to tell me. Tell me what, when does this occur? When does this word occur? When does this phrase occur? And then you suddenly see that actually people are talking about actors in Spain, in, in France, in Belgium, and that these common phrases keep occurring. And then you can link these common phrases to themes. So do people, for example, if you ask people about nuclear energy, are they actually talking about energy? Or are they talking about nuclear waste? Are they talking in a way that is protest-based? Or are they talking in a way that's just a member of a community who lives near a facility? And, and, and with a database, you can actually quite cleverly, I think, ask these questions and, and really dig, dig into the data. Whereas just by reading a set of 23 reports, we're only human, we can't, we can't hold everything in our heads. You, you can over a long period of time properly. And if that's all you do and you never do anything else, you probably can. But I think that's, that's very difficult within a, a fixed time frame and a, a three year project of which two, two and a bit years are left now. So it, it's a challenge, but I think as long as we make use of technology and use tools like, like the database, I think we'll be okay. That's John Witten speaking with me in Turia Riverbed Park in Valencia. We'll hear from him again later in the program, but I want to turn now to a topic that is often spoken about and so complex to measure, and that is engagement. Research projects love to mention it. In honest, engagement is at the heart of understanding the relationship between nuclear energy and society. So how to measure it? How to get that information that goes into the database John mentioned? For that answer, we turn to one of the instigators of the database, Carl Eric Mikkelsen of Laparanta University of Technology in Finland. The concept in this case is something that captures the phenomena. It is, it's like the metaphor. It, it describes something bigger and but has the elements in all of the things that we study. And like the social scientists in, the, in this project, they have put forward concept of engagement and perception. So when, we, when you say the concept of engagement, of course, the first thing that brings to your mind is that someone engages into something. So methodologically, then we start to look at historians. Of course, historians always look a causal relations. So we, we try to look at, in a chronological sense, history uses time, space, and then the phenomena. So something starts now, moves on, and has some effect. 
that's something what the historians can look at. And in terms of engagement, so for example, Chernobyl accident. Let's take this one. So it provokes a lot of fear, anxiety, attention. So you might assume that a lot of people start to engage in the nuclear issues. So they might, you know, read newspapers about about the accidents. They also might read about how the nuclear power stations in your country are they safe. They also might look at the technological details. Do we have the similar reactors or are we have the different reactors? They start to then uh, the experts engage. So they engage like explaining, okay, is it safe or unsafe? And they explaining, they appear in the TV explaining this and this and this. And then the policymakers come in and they start to engage because they need to do something. So engagement in this case is, is, a, is a word that connects all these actors. And then historians look how, how they start, what was the cause? Definitely we see in this case was a Chernobyl accident. And then these actors, they play their games. And then we decide what is the, the time that this was maybe one, two year after it. And then see, we, we see the outcome. Mm -hmm. That's the, like we use the engagement. I mean, it can be that a new government comes in. So in whatever country. So the government is expected to introduce new policies. So maybe they introduce new energy policy. Mm -hmm. And they happen to start the dialogue whether we will emphasize renewables. But then maybe it's a conservative government and they have the lobby, nuclear lobby, industrial lobby, and says, okay, now when you guys in the power, so let's start thinking about new nuclear power station. So this is international, this happens only in your country and it's a very national. So immediately the opposition forces, for example, environmentalist Green Party, engage to this. And this is no, 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 you should do that. And then when we read a little bit further out, we see that certain newspapers, the media take sides. Although they say, okay, we, we neutral, but they take sides. Some are backing up the government, some are highly critical. They give a lot of space for critical comments or pro-comments. Yeah. And then when the legislation starts to move on for maybe a, a new power station, so then the activist groups get together and maybe you have the demonstrations. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, again, we have the word engagement and then we can start to measure the, uh, the intensity of, of engagement. We can also analyze, like take the engagement in pieces, and then we can start asking critical questions. So we always need to ask critical questions. Are these people really engaging, having the agenda against this one, or do they have some hidden agendas? Mm -hmm. So maybe they just don't really uh, protest against the nuclear energy, but they want to get into power. Or is it the financial interest what they have? So engagement, you don't blindly take, but engagement is something that connects them. But then historians can, doing deeper research, can start to open up. And then if you take like a transnational uh, approach to history, which is usually that you see that although it happens in, in one country,
you see that, okay, uh, this is part of a bigger, like a global flow in terms of like opposing nuclear energy or pro-renewables. So you start to find similar things happening around the world. As you may have already noticed, gathering this data from country to country may not always go smoothly. Some documents or people involved uh, historically may be easy to find and happy to participate, but in some countries, the exact opposite may be true. Herein, we find one of the opportunities for researchers to show their ability to improvise and be creative with the idea that there must be another way to get hard-to-find data or, otherwise, an explanation to understand why or how it could be unavailable. And that explanation could also teach us something. So engagement, for example, in a democratic country, it's free, police don't harass you, you don't get put in a jail. But then we look at the engagements in, for example, a Soviet Union or some other place, which is forbidden. But then you don't give up if you don't find it immediately, because you still have the engagement can be very different. So you look at maybe there is some kind of a ways that you don't immediately recognize, but when you kind of push the concept a little bit further, you might find maybe passive resistance can be the engagement if the active resistance is forbidden. So people can passively resist. Mm -hmm. They don't just work or they delay, for example, planning of nuclear energy or they do something else. So this is when the creativity of a researcher comes in, and it also enriches the concept, which usually the concepts are built by several case studies, but sometimes it's limited because the case studies are chosen from maybe like so similar political systems. So when you move it to different political systems, and inexperienced researcher would say, I don't find it. Yeah. It's not here. So... Someone says, okay, it's here, you've got to look more closer. You know, it, it has a different shape. And if you find it, and it has a different appearance in different system, then the concept becomes more powerful, richer. And this is what social science and history does together. So while we're using the concepts to illuminate certain actual historical things, or what has happened, at the same, same time, we're using them to refine the concepts so they become like good instruments to be used in a number of different ways. Researchers, I mean, my background, I'm a social scientist, but I'm also a natural scientist. And, and I enjoy, if something comes along that makes my job easier, of course you have to invest the time and effort understanding a new system, a new tool, but ultimately you can reuse it and it will save you time. And if it makes my job easier, it doesn't, it doesn't cut down on my you know, intellectual thought process. It just gives me a tool that helps, helps me to get there quicker, that helps me to see things across 23 country reports a lot quicker than I would do if I was having to read through each one repeatedly. We'll, we'll all read the country reports, we have to do that, but I think it's constantly going back and rereading them and finding the place where we, where we find something interesting. Well, usually on a database, you can do data searches and you can save, you can save the data search. So if you want to use the same data search, but just tweak it slightly, add an extra word and you can do that. 
So th these are incredibly powerful. And we've been using tools like this, you know, within the natural sciences, but also within the social sciences. There's already software exists like MVivo that you can put text from interviews into and it will help you interrogate these databases. But I think the database that Cal has led on will hold all our information. Mm -hmm. It will hold the country reports. It will be a library, a repository. It will also hold all the references as well. Some that we'll use, some that we won't. And it will actually be something that, that future projects and future researchers can go back to and use. Now, I think actually that's a big responsibility for us mm -hmm. to have a project that's invested such an amount of money in this and time. And then at the end of it say, oh, well, that's it. No, no, no. This is this is a legacy. This is a legacy part of the project as well. We'll use it, but we'll also leave it for other researchers and, and future researchers to look at. And I, I think that's something very important. I, I believe quite strongly in that, actually. I think it's very important that we do that. listening to the honest podcast diving into the history of nuclear energy and society episode two recorded in the spring of 2016 in valencia spain we're talking about how to do this research what data will be gathered how to put that data together how to evaluate that data in the next part of today's program we'll look at methods and take what we learn about the past and look at how it connects with the present and the future these are unique methods that we've not yet heard about in detail, and to help us do that, we turn to Matthew Cotton from the University of Sheffield. From the kind of social science perspective, one of the things we're looking at is about how you could, for the work package that I'm working on, which is on looking at engagement futures, is how you can take what we understand of the past in order to um, I suppose, but understand what is going to happen in the future. And that's a notoriously difficult thing to do um, in the social sciences, you know, extrapolating from past trends um, into the future. And so a lot of what social sciences tend to do are uh, sort of forecasting methods. It's the idea about trying to extrapolate a trend and then see where that's going to head in the future. But what we wanted to do in this project is slightly different. It's what's called um, a backcasting analysis. So backcasting is, is if you like, the, the opposite of forecasting in the sense that a forecaster is trying to extrapolate a trend. A backcaster is trying to work out what endpoint you want to get to and then figure out how you can bring about change in order for that to happen. So um, a lot of kind of backcasting studies are really about um, identifying a sort of an ideal future and then thinking through the practicalities of making that happen and the challenges that you might face along the way. And so that's sort of the idea that we will use the, the work identified by the historians to look at 
um, issues of, of kind of societal engagement with nuclear um, at various different stages across different countries, and then see if there's any kind of any sort of best practice, I suppose, that emerges from that analysis. And then thinking about um, what what the future might look for for nuclear energy in society, and then kind of thinking through a series of what's sometimes called like visioning workshops, um, where you can sort of test the validity of a series of of principles um, that will be uh, set up in the work package before. I'm trying to remember which one, work package, part of work package five. Um, and then kind of testing that out with stakeholders. So it becomes a sort of, if you like, a participatory process. So essentially it's it's inviting people along um, to talk through the kinds of ideal futures that they want to create. But I mean, I have experience of sort of running and, and designing public engagement forums in various different ways um and i think that's really going to be the main kind of focus of this particular part of the work package that i'll be working on um the ideas that i've been sort of kicking around <laughs> have been uh looking at a, a concept which is sometimes called um dramatic rehearsal so it's kind of the idea that you um would use the information gained from the historical analysis to uh, essentially prevent, well, so, sorry, to present a series of, of scenarios, things which happened in the past, and then to think through the um, implications of similar scenarios happening in the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, a workshop type program would probably, these types of visioning workshops either involve the use of sort of visual methods, these might be artistic methods, um, a variety of discussion methods, including sort of brainstorming or concept mapping type activities, or it might also involve things like role-playing um, future scenarios. And the idea is that you can then talk through um, different problems that might arise, and then you sort of work on identifying a series of solutions to the problems that might arise, and then some sort of scoring system for sort of weighting the, the different options. And that's usually the, the kind of approach that would take in this sort of uh, backcasting analysis. And the idea is that then what we're really doing is sort of anchoring a, a, a social scientific study of um, public engagement in, in both the historical analysis and sort of thinking through the future. So it's sort of the idea is to try and uh, join together these, these different timelines, if you like. Matthew Cotton brings useful experience and ideas when it comes to methods for future engagement as part of Honest. Because the biggest question here beyond nuclear is not just this energy and the public, but it's also about how people think about the future and what they consider good, bad, and maybe everything in between. Done a little project um, for the for the Toyota Foundation, which is actually looking at uh, sort of artistic methods for thinking through what happens to future generations under different climate change scenarios. It's a slightly weird project, but um, yeah. So I ran a, a sort of a week long uh, workshop with a community artist, um, getting uh, in this case it was it was sort of young people. We were keen on getting young people from uh from universities from from colleges from local community to um sort of basically think through the implications of different climate change scenarios so if you like the extreme climate change scenario of greater than four degrees warming 
This is a feel like a more green scenario where we uh, de rapidly decarbonize society. And so they used uh, things like collage um, and drawing, model making, and um, some other kind of uh, sort of guided artistic techniques to think through what um, essentially what what environmental conditions future generations live under. And then they did a series of if like focus group activities with those. Um, with the participants thinking through what was fair or unfair about the scenarios that they create and then getting them to produce sort of artifacts at the end sort of uh of their own choosing so some people wrote um like a journal from a from the perspective of a person living 100 years from now um other people wrote if you like policy briefings for ministers someone designed a new, like a new arc, <laughs> sort of Noah's arc type thing, thinking about sea level rise and what, what we would need to do and create a sort of, in a mostly marine based society. Um, other people created sort of um, compounds of sort of highly, sort of structurally defended buildings uh, in order to cope with extreme weather events. So under all of those scenarios, from a social science perspective, I was quite interested in in sort of how people imagine the future, how they imagine future people, and how they um, think about what's right or wrong in those in those scenarios, which is notoriously difficult to do. I mean, one of the big problems, as we see with the with the nuclear power issue, of course, is that when we're thinking about nuclear waste management over hundred thousand to a million year timeframes, um, that clashes very much with you know, like a four-year election, four or five-year election cycle. Um, and you get this problem of the, the NIM2 problem, the not-in-my-term-of-office uh, problem, which creates a sort of short-termism. Um, and this is sort of rooted in, in psychology. You know, people are very good at thinking about things which are about to happen, which have a very short distance, either geographically or temporally. So um, people are good at... Uh, imagining short time frames but get very hazy when they imagine long time frames so essentially things are very concrete when they're close to you they're very abstract when they're further away and from a political point of view abstract things are very hard to legislate for so this is one of the problems i think we have with, with the nuclear power issue um and certainly we do also have with the climate change issue so there's some some similarities there the project's methods are really based on um, a mode of operation that uh, historians have, that they look into sources, that um, they will interview people, that they will um, go through public documents, they will go into archives. Jan-Henrik Meyer of the University of Copenhagen is a historian by training and also has a strong background in social sciences. For Honest, he manages Work Package 6, dissemination and engagement. His focus, the Danish experience and transnational nuclear movements. The, in the Danish case that I'll be looking at, I will be going to the National Archive, the Reichsarchiv uh, Archive in, in, in Copenhagen, and I will look at the, the records of the, um, of the relevant authorities that dealt with nuclear issues. And I also know that there is a depository Uh, of the records of the anti-nuclear movement, the, this uh, OOA, that's the major group in in uh, in Denmark. So what you do is you you have your we we develop this framework together. Kind of what are the kind of 
the, the general questions that we're posing, kind of what's what's the economic and political contexts, what um, and and how did people how how did the the nuclear sector present uh, nuclear uh, power to the population as the future as uh, an economic necessity particularly in a country that uh, such as Denmark that doesn't didn't have any coal and until they had uh, gas and oil from the North Sea they didn't have any fossil fuels so in the post-war period it long for a long time looked as if nuclear was the solution to the problem of having access to energy and then how societal actors how an emerging anti-nuclear movement pointed to the problems that come with nuclear power in the danish case what was apparently decisive that's what i know from the literature and that's that's another element of of method that we're looking at what has been previously written and um the issue of where to dispose of the nuclear waste in a country as tiny as Denmark uh, with a geography that doesn't have any major caves or <laughs> anything underground where you could throw it in and you couldn't dispose as the British have done for a long time um, I, actually until the 80s they dumped it in the sea I think that that didn't appeal to the Danes either but it is kind of these these positions that I will look at and then we will write these country reports to summarize all these this this factual information but also elements of analysis of trying to explain why um, in the Danish case for example the outcome was that the government stepped back from the nuclear option in 1976 and then uh, in the mid 80s decided to forgo the nuclear option forever what will be very um, useful is to recycle contemporary um, social science, um, contemporary um, analyses, also journalistic analyses uh, on the issue, because they have they have an, a more aggregate view of this. You have to do that in a critical historical manner, which means that you have to be aware that the concepts, the analytical concepts, that the his uh, that the social scientists as well as the journalists were using were the concepts of the day. So they understood it from the problem perceptions of their time. So they would um, use they, their perception of, of, say, the dangers of radiation or their perceptions of the problem of centralizing uh, the provision of energy too much in a country that actually had a very decentralized structure of, of energy provision these problems that need to be taken into account and um so that's that's kind of the the historical end of the of, of the methodology here we've just heard a bit about the danish case and the historical analysis of what went on there who was involved and how leading us back to the next phase of the project that matthew cotton gave us a glimpse into earlier today engaging those who have an interest in the subject of new technology and society. Here's Jan Henrik's take on stakeholder engagement. In, so this, this is kind of step one and two of the project, history, uh, social science, social history analysis. And then the part three is really trying to engage with 
the stakeholders, stakeholders being civil society actors, industry actors, um, um, people from the nuclear sector, policy makers, everyone who um, who's interested in the question how new technologies get introduced and how new technologies find or not the acceptance of of the people and what are procedures that can be used and that's that's what john witten probably uh, presented yesterday um what are the procedures that make people uh feel that it's a fair way of of dealing with their concerns and um not necessarily winning them over, but uh, treating their concerns in an appropriate manner. And uh, what we will do is we will first have a round of webinars, so kind of online meetings with people from um, different stakeholder groups, civil society or industrial actors from different countries and talk with them about our findings concerning these countries and, and general findings. Conversations for today's program were recorded in Valencia. As I mentioned earlier, you can often hear it in the background. Sometimes we're on the streets, sometimes we're in the classroom, always in the environment of the European Social Science History Conference that was going on, a setting that actually connects with the very mission Jan Heinrich and at the start of today's program, John Witten have been talking about. The idea of speaking, presenting, making the work known to those who may be interested and even connected in some way to this topic. We have to offer our stakeholders a sort of a, a package or a, a product that they are willing to buy from us. Otherwise, we will not be able to to win um, to win them to spend their time. I mean, their time is a limited resource. If we are uh, so so that 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 element of packaging it we will have to uh, think about key messages um, and then have options of feeding in more information um, on the other hand um, uh, historical and social science research is not engineering that uh, that we have this uh, like or it's not advertising it's uh, we don't we will probably not end up with a uh, a one-liner without a footnote or without an, an explanation. I mean, it's it's important to, to reduce information and to package it and get it down to the its very essence mm -hmm. and not sink it in like a sea of information. We have a responsibility to, to go out and tell people about this and it is an academic project. So to come to an academic conference which is history-based but also has a social element, a social history element, that's, that's the right place and it's an international conference so it's the right place to present our work. And, and we did present a, a combination of historical and social science papers and, and some were somewhere in between. So that, that, that's our responsibility and, and that's what we will, and we'll do more of this I'm sure. And I think this is also why we were commissioned to do this. Uh, is that we will engage with the complexity of the issue and that uh, we can say, okay, under these conditions it worked, but we cannot say that this is replicable. And that, that's my, kind of, that's the, um, 
um, we we will arrive at sort of these mechanisms, but uh, there will always be the need to put a disclaimer that these mechanisms only work under certain conditions, and that reality is very complex. Uh, but it was, you know, you saw in the rooms yesterday that we had people who were not involved in the project. They'd probably never heard of the project because we've only just started, but they came along and they, I would like to hope that they got a very good picture of what it was we were trying to do. And some of us actually at the beginning of our presentation introduced Honest. We, we, we explained what it was and then we went into our research in terms of, well, this is how our research fits into this bigger project. But again, it was just, just getting the message out there of what we were doing. You're listening to The Honest Podcast. We're hearing from some of the team members on the topic of methodology, how to go about doing such a major research project on nuclear energy and society. Now, much of the conversation today has been between social science and the historical side. So to bring it all home, we'll hear now from Scientific Secretary, the leader of Work Package 3, and perhaps most importantly for today's program especially, the person who helps coordinate the efforts linking social scientists and historians in Honest. She is Mar Rubio from the Universidad Pública de Navarra. And to start, here's Mar's explanation of the way Honest carries out its tasks. So there is a first phase uh, led by historians in which the historians will look for evidence of the relationship between society and the nuclear sector. And that evidence has many forms. Uh, that evidence can come in the forms of documents that uh, organizations left written or governments or companies or um, the, men, the, the people of the anti-nuclear organizations also were very prolific on writing their arguments. So one part is documents. Uh, other part is not necessarily documents that were uh, public or not at the time, but things that actually went on the public eye from the beginning that were defined like that. That can be anything from advertising from the industry, but can be campaigns against it. Uh, that goes for advertising, uh, videos, uh, and interviews in radio and TV that at the time, particularly at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, um, might have been out there trying to put the different positions uh, and trying to recover that in a systematic way. Besides playing the role of coordinator, Mar also contributes to the project by interviewing stakeholders for the Spanish case. And as you'll get to hear, these interviews are an interesting and rare glimpse into a recent past that is both complex, as Jan Heinrich warned us about, but is also very interesting, very fascinating, as Mar explains it. And the last, uh, although it's not an exclusive list, but of, of the main things that the historians are supposed to be collecting, um, is interviews with people that are still alive, that had a memory of the sector, 
from uh, the late 70s and before we are interviewing people that are under their 80s or in the 70s, people that uh, were either participating on the debate from the different points. Uh, you can think of the anti-nuclear activists that are still out there, uh, the people of the government that have to listen to both sides and take decisions on whether to run or not to run um, referendums and the like, or take on moratoriums. And then, of course, there is the industry. And in the industry, you can differentiate between the utilities that are the people that actually decided on building uh, nuclear uh, plants and the nuclear sector itself, that is the, the companies that produce the, the mechanism machines that will actually be there. And once we have inter um, identified actors and identified uh, events, then there is a more difficult task, at least from my point of view, which is identifying the perceptions, because we have what they say. Uh, it's much more difficult to, from the documents and even from the interviews, to identify what they had on their mind, what they were a priori, how they were thinking about this problem, what, where their arguments is clear, what were the perception is not so clear. So there's something we have to basically take out from, from the evidence. And in theory, because as this is again a methodology, um, sociologists and social scientists and social psychologists that we have in the team will come and analyze that evidence and try to extract simplicity from the complexity of it. For me, being a historian, I had normally worked in, in archives and with documents, hardly ever with, uh, with people, because my people normally were the head. So this is the first time I have the opportunity to talk to people that participated in things that now we consider history and they were well on the life at the time and they have their memories, even if memory is always selective in a way. And people actually sort of self-explain afterwards what happened. Um, most of what we have interviewed so far, um, I said before that we try to, to go through all the stakeholders or the actors participating. In the case of Spain, we basically identify the anti-nuclear movement, the government and the industry. We have been very, very successful with the anti-nuclear movement people. First, because there were not so many uh, and you could identify the heads, the people that were very, very at the forefront. And these are basically four people that uh, today are in their 80s uh, with very clear heads, which is uh, amazing for me. Uh, with some of them, we have been for four or five hours talking. Um, and they have a very fresh memory of how that started because the first question for many of these people is how do you get into this? I mean, because most of these people were young people in some occasions, some of them were professionals. Um, one of them, Pedro Costa Morata, in fact, was working for the nuclear uh, sector uh, in, in the Basque country when he found out that they were going to build a nuclear power plant on the other side of the country, in his hometown. And then he was the engineer. When he went back home at Christmas, people started asking him, well, what do you think about this thing they said? And he was half too minded because he was an engineer working in the nuclear sector, but then he was on his hometown. So eventually he started saying, well, I don't think this is a good idea. And he started to move people. And so the second question of to all of them is, okay, now we know how you started. And in all the cases, they started because the idea of building a nuclear power plant at their hometown, in, in all four cases, is on their town or very nearby, um, is how they started to organize the social movement in a country that was on the, at the end of a dictatorship, but very much on a dictatorship. And uh, we had to remember that in Spain, still in 1975, we had uh, five people, 
from them to death penalty and killed. So it's a dictatorship, and you try to organize social movement against something that has been decided by the government. So how do you go about that? So they tell us all kind of stories about how they went over organizing people, talking to their their neighbors, organizing the small meetings, legal, illegal, uh, the church, whatever it was possible, then trying to escalate a little bit into the local authorities uh, that actually were crucial. We have learned uh, if the, lo- the local town hall uh, took any administrative action um, at the time, in none of those locations where the local authorities took any action, eventually it was a nuclear power plant that was crucial. Um, and then the, the interview goes over how that goes escalating. In some of these cases, people actually managed to organize a very big, social movement in the Basque country. Uh, we have to put together the numbers, but I think I'm convinced that it's the largest by the number of people on the streets, demonstrations uh, on the whole of Europe. And then there are things that we are interested about that have to do with the perception part that I was saying before it was difficult on the nature of what they were their concerns. And it's also very interesting to, that they recognized they had not an ecological mind or they were not trying to raise an ecological movement, as might have been the case in Germany. It was much more of a, a pure local worry about the possibility of their uh, local hinterland disappearing. And that touchy feeling of, this is my land. And, um, and for me, it's interesting because it's not anti-nuclear per se, I think some of this movement have been assisted if what had been proposed in might have been any other kind of industry that might have been perceived as invasive of, of the landscape or putting at risk the, land, the landscape. Um, and that is very interesting. And then we want to know things uh, on the interviews that have to do with um, the kind of interactions they had with the industry, if they assisted. Uh, most of them have told us that uh, hardly any at all that uh, the, the, neither the utilities nor the government ever contact them, even though they have put down, you know, big demonstrations and all kind of complaints, but no real interaction to try to explain themselves to the other side. No, the other side trying to come and convince them of why this might be good for the region or the locality. Um, and in general, trying to figure out what kind of people got involved. Um, and to what extent the anti-nuclear movement in Spain had other sides to it because uh, at some point accumulated people that were against the dictatorship, not necessarily against the nuclear power, but given that nuclear power came through the utilities and the utilities and the dictatorship worked together, if you were against the nuclear, you weren't against the dictatorship. So it's difficult to disentangle those things. And you actually got in this movement people agglutinated that came from the left and the right, that were non in, had nothing in common elsewhere uh, on their thinking, but they had in common that they were anti the nuclear uh, power plant. But I, I, I mean, I'm learning a lot. It's incredibly interesting. Um, then we also had the opportunity to interview the people at the government, um, the people that took the decision uh, on, on the Spanish moratorium. And that's a completely different discourse. There, the discussion, actually, they, they told us something like, and the nuclear movement, really, we didn't listen to that, which actually matched what the anti-nuclear movement told us of uh, didn't have interaction. 
um, the discussion at the government level was a different discussion. It was a different discussion of whether it was possible to go ahead with such a big nuclear program, whether it was possible to pay, whether um, the companies could survive it, and how to dismantle a huge program without hurting the electrical sector, the banks that were behind that, and not having to pay a lot about it. But it was a completely different level of discussion. And we are looking forward to the interviews with the industry. We have that arranged at the end of May. Um, here, mostly the industry represented by the country, the companies that produce uh, for the nuclear power plants, not necessarily the, 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 the nuclear part, not the reactor, that, that in the case of Spain came from the States or from Germany or from France, uh, but the companies that participated in the building of the, of the, of the nuclear power plants. Uh, we are missing and we are still trying to get hold on somebody from the utilities, which were uh, the major stockholders. I mean, they are the ones that decided to build nuclear power plants and then, of course, ask permission from the government and then look for the companies to produce to, to build the, the, the nuclear power plants. But Spain is a particularly difficult country to talk to the utilities, uh, not for this project in general. One of the themes that Mar comes back to in describing the interesting and multi-layered context of Spain and nuclear energy is the element of timing. Although documents are a key part of the materials being used, a more time-sensitive resource are the people who lived these moments, worked in the industry, lived in the community, or marched for, maybe against, some initiative or policy. Many of these people are in their golden years right now, still alive, and able to tell their story. Now is very much the time to collect this information, and in many cases, there may not be a better chance. We're trying to get hold of as many people as we possibly can, and the reason for that is that these people won't be around in two or three years' time. So if we want to do this uh, for the sake of understanding the history of this with the people that actually were there, we have to do it now. And honestly, it's an incredible opportunity for doing this. In other countries, this has been done before. The British have a fantastic archival of oral history of people that have been on the business for a very long time at all levels, government and the nuclear industry. Uh, I'm aware that there are some interviews also in the Russian case that uh, Tatiana would be using uh, that have been done before. In the case of Spain, this hasn't done before. Um, and therefore, we are going to try to go as far as we possibly can with the time, the resources, the money, and the people that actually say yes uh, to our interviews. Uh, and that's our aim. If if we can get 10 on one side and only one on the other, well, we keep fighting to get nine on the side that we are short of. But uh, we are not going to cut on the side of, of the people that want to talk because we don't have enough on the other side. Uh, but we're trying to get as many as possible. It's been a learning process for a lot of the project collaborators and it will continue to be a learning process to, to see and look beyond the individuality of their process. And hence, the, we've, we've taken this inductive approach, included many questions that are cross-section, but that come from like the, the specific research interest of the, uh, of the individual researchers. And... Um, it's, it's been a very hard decision process 
to to decide kind of what are the most relevant issues and there is still uh, we the the end of the process was that we left a number of uh, questions that are that people can address or not whether uh, depending on whether it's relevant for their case well the whole idea is trying to understand first how it it gets on and how some ideas got on some countries very strong and some countries were discussed or not um and one I think that I, one thing that I think is important to understand is how the discussion is set in different settings. Um, in England, from what I have been learning from the British case, everything was much more open in how it was discussed, and that let people more the feeling that they had a say. Um, in Spain, as a dictatorship and some of the Eastern European countries, we have more the feeling that, yes, the civil society might have complained, but they have the feeling that doesn't really matter what they did, they didn't reach. And actually, when we talked to the authorities, well, they told us, well, no, we were not hearing, we were not listening. Um, so part of this is how to improve interactions when things are touching, not only for the nuclear power, I think one of the uh, the things that I, whenever I talk to other people and they ask us, so what? Um, there are two fears when we talk to people about honest. One is whether this project will actually serve Euraton uh, to improve their communications skills and to make more palatable the nuclear industry. That might be the case. But for me, that's not the ultimate goal. For me, it's for all of the other technologies, and there are many, uh, in which society had a problem with it for whatever reason, because it's perception, not necessarily rational. Um, how do we can go about improving uh, that relationship of society and technology? It's, it's overall the socio-technological problems we are addressing here. Understanding where it failed and where it failed miserably, what could have been done better? It might not change the public opinion, but at least it might be a better attempt to get things going in a different foot. And as I said, that's not exclusive of the nuclear power. Um, there are plenty of technologies in the present and even more in the future over which society will have serious questions. And uh, we have to learn how to improve that interaction. Then to decide to go ahead or not to go ahead, but at least that there are better ways of dealing with socio-technological problems. I think that's, for me, the main objective of the project. That brings us to the end of episode two of the Honest Podcast, where for the past 60 minutes, we've explored the methodology, the question of how to do this project, with help from John Witten, Carl Eric Mickelson, Matthew Cotton, Jan Henrik Meyer, and Mar Rubio. For more information and updates about Honest, go to honest2020.eu. You can also follow Honest on Facebook and Twitter at Honest underscore 2020. 
Music on today's podcast was by Jesse Spillane, Paolo Pavan Pasquilano, Return to Normal, and Herzani Lazio, all published under CC licenses and available on the Free Music Archive. This podcast is published under a CCBYSA 4.0 license and edited by me. Until next time, for The Honest Podcast, I'm Mark Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>